Well, this is a little embarrassing. I'm not quite prepared for this one. Uh, anybody, has anybody seen Dave? I mean, he was here in the first service, so... I'm not sh- Dean, would you just step out and see if Dave's at the children's counter? Well, I... You know, I, sh- I should probably go see where he's at. Hang on, hang on a second. Would you guys page him? Thanks. Dave Foster, please report to the worship center. Dave Foster, please report to the worship center. <laughs> Waiting's hard isn't it? How do you feel when you have to wait? What kind of emotions come up? Yeah, patience. You're a better person than I am. I'm very impatient. I hate to wait. Uh, My family knows I hate to wait. My daughters describe going on vacation with me like you get up at six, dad has plan, 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 plan. You know, you're in bed maybe at one, something. And I'm just that way. What kind of emotions does it stir up in you? Frustration? A little bit of anger, possibly? And then if it goes on long enough, you think betrayal. What happened to that person? What am I waiting for? Then we begin to doubt, don't we? Like, maybe I had the wrong time, the wrong day. This is crazy. And because we live in the age that we live in, what's going to come up next you know, we'll get the phone out. Let's check the, the, the day planner. Did I have the right time? Yeah, I think so. Well, let's try calling him, see if he'll show up or she will show up. Possibly. Did I get a text explaining their absence? No. Waiting is hard. It is so hard. The disciples were worried about that. As we open up our, our passage for today in Mark chapter 13, uh, right away, and starting in verse 3, we see that Jesus has retreated during this Passion Week, this very difficult, difficult time for him personally, where he just seems to be embattled with different groups of people who want nothing more than to see his life end. And the disciples are privy to the information that his life is going to end. He's already told them that I've come so that I might die as a ransom for many, to pay the penalty for sins. But I'm sure that this conversation that we have the opportunity to look in on today in Mark 13 has been a conversation they've had before. Now, they're going to ask for signs. They're going to ask for indications that they have, they're at the right place at the right time. And Jesus' response is somewhat surprising. If, like me, you're reading through the Gospels, you've gotten used to the fact that when people ask Jesus for a sign, he's very unwilling to give them one. 
And I think this is because it's unbelievers. How do we know that you're truly the Messiah? Give us a sign. And Jesus' typical response is, because you are a wicked generation, no sign will be given. But this time, when he has his inner circle, and it says specifically Peter and Andrew and James and John, the brothers that he first called three years previously, when he first began his ministry, these Galileans, his neighbors, and they say, what is the sign? How are we going to know this is happening? In fact, what they say is, uh, as they meet with him, it says privately, tell us, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And the church has been asking those questions ever since. When? How will we know? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. You're going to hear wars, rumors of war, and he just starts going down sign after sign. What I think is fascinating is that Jesus understands there's going to be a period of waiting, doesn't he? This is not going to just happen one, two, three. The church has been waiting. The saints of the Old Testament had been waiting. People seem to be waiting on God a lot. You can go all the way back to the time of Moses. And the children of Israel were waiting. Think about this. Jacob comes down. He enters into Egypt uh, because of the gratuity of Pharaoh and the fact that his own son is the prime minister of Egypt. And they live there. But a time arises when a Pharaoh comes about that did not know Joseph and they're put into slavery. They live there for 400 years. And then once even let out through the Exodus, they wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. And it says as a word of explanation that the time of the Canaanites had not come. Another way that it's put is the fullness of the Amorites has not. And what does that mean? Well, it means that God had planned to chastise them, to discipline them to bring them to accounts for their iniquity. And it had not come yet. And I can only understand that to mean that God in his patience was hoping that these near relatives of Abraham's seed would finally come to a point of understanding whom God is. And then the greatest signs of all are given towards the coming of the Messiah, right? The birth of the Christ. People in the Old Testament had plenty of signs given to them. They should have known that it was imminent. What are some of those signs that they had? Well, we have a series of billboards that show us our path on the road to Bethlehem, right? He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to be of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, preceded by messengers. That's going to happen, and they should have seen it. But let me ask you this morning, how many people in the Old Testament caught this? How many people in the days of Jesus could foresee this? And yet we know that there were some 100 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. And it's not like they fell asleep at the wheel. They were digging into the Word of God. I've read so many Jewish writings from the intertestamental period and in the close of the Old Testament. These people, there's nothing they wanted more than to see this Messiah arrive. 
This was going to be the restoration spoken of and prophesied by God's prophets. This was going to be a time when the nation of Israel, fulfilling all the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to David, the king, when the Davidic kingdom will even expand beyond those borders, land, seed, and blessing. Oh, they couldn't wait. They were digging. They were looking. And still, that star appeared. The babe was born in Bethlehem. The angels knew it. Shepherds knew it. But the Bible scholars, they didn't know it. The people of God seemed to be absent. And in the meantime, the Messiah flees to Egypt and lives there for his first two years. Who knew it? Well, it seems like there were some astronomers that came from the east that saw a star and wanted to know its significance. They knew it. There seemed to have been a very wicked king by the name of Herod who decided to kill all rivals to the throne. Every boy that was born at this time was destroyed by this king because he knew it. But God's people, in the dark, didn't get it, didn't grasp it. And Jesus is now talking to his inner circle. He's talking to you and me. Imagine yourself sitting on a rock at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And this week has come upon us. And you know that you're going to be losing your Messiah. And you don't want that to happen. Not in the worst way you don't want this to happen. But it's going to happen anyway because this is part of God's plan. And of course, since you're great friends, since you've spent three years in life living together, you're saying, when is this going to happen? When are you going to return to us? When will be the ushering in of the kingdom that we kind of hoped would be the ushering in of the kingdom when you were born? You see, the Jews understood that all these things that Jesus is prophesying about that is going to happen in this chapter, they were hoping that's what was going to happen at the first coming. That the nation would be restored, that the kingdoms around them would be judged. That the Messiah would bring power and righteousness. Not come as a baby. Not coming as someone who needs their rear end wiped. That wails. That has to grow up. That is sick. That is tempted by sin. Who could have foreseen that? And even if all that is true, 2,000 years? 2,000 years? The church has been waiting for their Lord to return. Paul says in Romans chapter 16, this is a great mystery. It's profound. Who could have known it? And it's another one of those fullness things. Just like we had the first one, when the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, right? When the fullness of time was right, God sent forth his son. What does that mean, the fullness of time? God has a timetable. He has a plan. And even at this point, there's a plan. Even 2,000 years later, there's a plan. Some call this yours and mine's age, the age of the Gentiles. We who are not born of the seed of Abraham, who are not part of the tribe of Judah, who are not of the household of Jesse or the kingdom of David, this is our time. The reason of Jesus' delay, according to the word, is so that we have an opportunity to come to Christ, so that we can spread the news to our other family members. Those who are related to us. And that means anybody who's not of this tribe. And sometimes it even means those who are of that tribe, according to Romans 11. 
this time was not foreseen. And Jesus is saying this. This is tricky. This are the signs. These are the signs that I'm coming back. Beware. Watch for them. And what does he say? Well, he gives us some more billboards of when he's going to return. There's going to be false Christ. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis. And then there are going to be famines. There's going to be all kinds of things. And he says, this will be the sign. And you say, well, how do we tell? I mean, all those things seem to be true right now, don't they? I was with a friend who was a pastor at a small church in Nebraska. And they had a Sunday school hour before the main service. And I got to go and listen to him teach. And he was going through Mark 13 and going through these signs. And one of his men, in fact, an elder, a very important man in the church, says, this is just ridiculous. There's always been false messiahs. There's always been rumors of war. There have always been natural disasters. There's always been famine and pestilence and flood. What kind of signs are these? It's a great question, actually. Because, yeah, you're right. The church has gotten this wrong so many times in its history. Over and over again, when things happen around us, we're tempted to say, this is it! Get up on your roof! Jesus is sending a helicopter! Let's jump on! Let's get out of here! You could read back to the medieval ages. So many church people were writing, well... With this plague, this black plague that is happening, we don't understand where it came from. We don't understand how it works. All we know is that people are dying. Huge percentage of Europe actually just dies. Carts are going down the street collecting bodies. The graveyards are overflowing. Certainly this must be what Jesus was talking about. Even Martin Luther believed that that was possibly what was happening. Such a great churchman, such a great theologian. At the beginning of World War I, many, many American evangelists and teachers were saying the same thing. This will be the war to end all wars. And why is it happening? This must precipitate the coming of the Savior. He's returning. Jump ahead to the 70s, right? Those of you who are old enough to remember the 70s. Late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey. Man, we all thought Jesus was coming. We had evangelists and pastors telling us that very thing. Some pastors even went on record and said, yeah, 1985 is the year. We've got it calculated out. The, the, Israel comes back into the land in 1948. It's one generation then, and bam, Jesus is returning. I literally went to conferences. I went to restaurants where these evangelists were doing pre-city evangelical uh, meetings and saying, let's get ready. If Christ returns in 85, this is 1981, we only have a few short years. I knew one pastor who told me, I've studied this all my life, Dave. If Jesus doesn't return in the year 2000, everything that I have studied is worthless. And I said to him, thanks. Thanks a lot. Because what Jesus also says in this chapter of that day, in that hour, no man knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. It's another one of those fullness of the times thing. So I said to him, hey, since you're calling the year 2000, you just blew it. 
Because if you know it, then you just made Scripture a liar. That cannot happen. Thanks. So maybe 1999, maybe 2001, but not 2000. That's a tension in this whole chapter, by the way. Here's a sign, here's a sign, here's a sign, here's a sign. And then all of a sudden he says, but really, in all soberness, no one knows when this is going to happen. I don't even know when this is going to happen. I'm just giving you hints that this age is coming. No one knows. How do we deal with that? How do we live in light of that? Such an important... Well, he tells us two things. That's going to be what I'm going to take away from this chapter. Two things. He says to endure, and he says to stay awake. Why do we have to endure? What are we enduring? Well, we're enduring all of the horrible things that are happening here. And most of chapter 13 is dedicated to a description, a vivid description of what is happening. Be on guard is an imperative, a command. Be on guard, for they will deliver you, I'm reading from verse 9, over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, for the Holy Spirit is going to speak for you. And then he says, even the basic family structure is going to be destroyed. Brother will deliver himself to death. Father, his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all. And there are so many descriptions of this. This same uh, interaction between Jesus and his apostles is told in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 24 and 25. As Luke recounts it, in chapter 17. This is an important piece of what Jesus is about during his Passion Week as we march to the cross. He wanted his people to be prepared. He wanted them to be awake, to be alert. He wanted them to endure. What are we enduring? It's not just that we're living. We, don't, we shouldn't think of this endurance like boy, I hope I'm not one of those killed in a flood. I hope that I'm not one of them who's asleep at night in my house in an earthquake, the ground opens up, and my house is gone. That's not the endurance he's talking about. His endurance is keep the faith. Stay true to your calling. Understand that there is a God. You are his people. And some of this judgment that is coming down is going to backwash over you as well. Stay in there. Hang in there. Endure. Persevere. He has to say that to us, doesn't he? Because in so many ways, we're not good endurers. The church hasn't always got, had a proven track record where we endure all the things that are going to happen to us. When I look back at chapter 25, excuse me, chapter 24 of Matthew, it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then there's a long description, then the Son of Man is going to come. I'm looking at verse 36. The Son of Man will appear, and then the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the manna coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, you should be aware that as these men are listening to Jesus talk, when he says that the Son of Man will be coming immediately as good Hebrew children, Hebrews that went to synagogue school and were trained in this, 
and understood the Old Testament. They understand that Jesus is linking what he's talking about in this little sermonette to the Old Testament because Son of Man immediately would bring up images that the prophets had used. Daniel specifically. The Son of Man will be coming. It's clearly a messianic reference. He is going to come. And now all of a sudden, the fact that they missed the details about that first coming sharpened for us. Because the Son of Man is coming in judgment. He's coming in justice. And then everything, if we could jump forward to when the Apostle John, at the end of his life, receives that vision that we call the book of Revelation. And we take all of the events that happen in that book, that the Left Behind series uh, by Tim LaHaye tries to dramatize, and others throughout history have tried to make sense of. All of those events happen within the context of what Jesus is saying to his disciples at this moment. This is that time. And it's going to take great endurance for the church. We have to endure. What are we going to endure? How do we keep our faith? That is by doing the work that he's commissioned us to do, even in the midst of these destructions. Because what happens in people's hearts when death, disaster, begin to happen? We see people shooting up schools. We see children being killed. We see all kinds of events happening around us. They test our faith because people say to us, they love to say this to us, how can there be a God when these things happen? How can you sit there and say that you're a Christian and that Jesus is loving and he is the God of love and all these things around us happen? Doesn't God love me? Doesn't God love us? And Matthew brings out this contrast because he says in chapter 24, verse 36, or excuse me, 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware, there's a key word here, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is repeated like three times in this. What do we to gain from that? Yeah, God is loving. God is a God of love. But he's a God of justice. He's a God of judgment. He's already proven it to us on a couple of occasions. Here at the flood, Noah is taking all this time to build this giant boat. Remember, a raindrop hasn't been seen on earth at this point. The concept of waters flooding, while very vivid to us, as we watched Hurricane Harvey this last year take out huge parts of cities like Houston, they'd never seen anything like it. You would have thought that at the minimum, they would have just been provoked to saying to Noah, what in the world are you doing? And maybe they did. But I think they laughed at him. They were unaware. And instead of focusing on Noah or his boat, they should have been asking, if Noah is telling us the truth, who is this God that he's talking about that has plans to wipe out the earth? If you turn over to Luke chapter 17, he adds another one. It's not just Noah, and they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. But in the days of Lot, they were doing business. Business is normal. They were planting, they were reaping, they were selling, they were trading. 
And then what came? On Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone rained down on this city. Injustice, not evil. Injustice. You remember the story, Abraham is begging. Please, God, if you can find so many righteous people, <coughs> will you just please spare this city? If you can find ten, will you spare this city? And all God would do is find one righteous man, Lot, and his family. And those he prepared, and he sent them out. He sent angels to tell them, this is it, this is the time. Get ready, flee. And that imagery is carried forward in this sermon that Jesus is preaching here in Mark 13. Flee. And he says things are going to happen where if you're out in the field, don't stop and, and get your cloak. Just run. If you're in a house, get out. Woe to you who are pregnant and nursing at this time because you're going to have to get away from destruction. The book of Revelation kind of gives the same imagery. There will be people calling before the rocks, the mountains, to fall upon them because the judgment and justice of Christ is so powerful. They don't want to see it. They don't want to be part of it. They would rather die a normal, uh, even though by rock, death, than to face him. This is what's coming. We have to endure. We have to keep the faith. We have to be able to give a good word for God, despite the fact that these things are happening all around us. Having conversations with people after times like with the school shooting in Florida, it's really tough. How could God let that happen? Why didn't God stop Nicholas Cruz from taking a gun and shooting them? Why do you Christians not oppose or do oppose gun control? We have to give an account for that. We have to stand up before people and say, oh, we still worship that God. He's still a God of love. And what we really should be saying is the, the window is narrowing. The window is narrowing. The window is narrowing. Time is coming when something like that Florida school shooting will not be the exception. It's going to be the norm. Except instead of being evil men doing their worst from power, from greed, and from anger, it's going to be a just and holy God. And there's not going to be any escaping his righteousness, his judgment. You're going to wish that you were back in days like today, as incredible as that may seem. That is the witness. That is the testimony. That is why people, according to this passage, are going to hate believers because we're giving a word of testimony for this. The second thing that we're supposed to be alert to is that we are supposed to stay awake. Back at Mark 13, we run into at least four or five commands by Jesus to be alert, to be awake. And they're all imperatives. They're commands. Verse 23, he says, be on guard. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of somebody being on guard. I used to have dogs. We had beagles, so to speak. Uh, my daughter... Uh, my oldest daughter was in 4-H back in Nebraska, and so she got a dog, and she trained it, and Barney was a great animal. And then we had the great idea to get a female beagle, and you know what came next? Litter upon litter upon litter of beagles. And there was many a night 
when we would be sitting in our home, watching TV, playing games, doing whatever, and all of a sudden, Beagle at the front door. And I would say, well, you know, someone's coming. The doorbell's going to ring. Somebody's going to knock. Beagles have a great sense of smell. He went on alert. He was on guard. But I tell you, what freaked me out is when no one knocked, when the doorbell didn't ring. You can't fool a beagle. I, I didn't think that, that he was just doing that for fun. This was his home. He was on guard. He was alert. He was letting me know there was something out there. Now, beagles are not the most courageous animal. I've been with Barney where we've run around our house trying to chase down squirrels. There were a couple of cats in the backyard fighting. And I remember running around one night about 2 a.m. just because I thought it'd be fun with a dog to see what happens when two cats, you know, see this dog coming. And we came around the corner of the house and I realized I was all alone. <laughs> he was back there. There's no way he was taking on two cats. He was way smarter than I'd given him credit for. But nevertheless, he always would go on alert when there was something out there. You're supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be the, the guard dogs. The, your neighbors, your friends should notice that you're like this, right? You're looking. And they should be asking, what? What did I miss? What's out there? And your answer is coming. I, I had a friend uh, in high school, Mike. And we met every morning at the front doors to Omaha Central High in Omaha because they didn't open the doors to a certain time. Our bus got there early, and we had no choice but just to stand there. And I remember standing there on a lot of mornings in parkas, freezing. But we were talking, and I was so zealous for Christ. I was a brand-new believer, and I was telling him, Mike, the day is coming. The day is coming when God's judgment is going to come down. And you keep resisting this message of salvation. And I remember Mike standing there saying, yeah, right. And he was interested in the details. He wanted to know all about it. But there was no way that he was giving his life to Christ. And I remember just kind of ending with this almost prophetic stance and saying, Mike, just remember, when you see these things come to pass, if we talked about this, I'm on guard. Verse 23, be on guard. Drop down to verse 33. You see the same thing. Be on guard. And then a second imperative is coming. Keep awake. Verse 35, it's repeated again. Stay awake. And he's saying that you don't know when the time is. Verse 37. And it ends this whole sermon. says this, For what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Be alert. If you look up that word in the original language, you realize what he's saying is be prepared. Uh, it's not just about alertness. It's about when this happens, be ready. Now, I don't think he's meaning be an end-of-the-earth survivor, living in your basement with cartons of Crest toothpaste and shampoo. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying make sure you get to everybody. Make sure you get to everybody and you've warned them. And you've told them what is coming. The people that you love and know, even your enemies, be alert. Stay awake. Be prepared. Don't put off to tomorrow doing what you should have been doing for God today. And the reason I say this is because in Matthew's version of this, in chapter 25, he gives us the parable of the talents. And many of you are acquainted with this. A talent is a, is a 
metal weight. It's the heaviest measurement in the Old Testament. And people estimate it to be around 75 pounds in our measurements today. It was a flat disc of gold or silver. Oh, it was valuable. Uh, possibly if you're using an Egyptian weight measure, it's worth today in gold probably about $1.25 million. If you're using another measurement, maybe $300,000. But whatever the case, it was commonly assumed that this was enough money, even for a wealthy person, to live a minimum of 20 years without working. And in this parable, Jesus comes to these men and says, here you go. Here's your talent. They've got one. Here's you. You get two talents. Here's you. You get five talents. And Jesus, in this little play that he's giving them, puts himself in the position of being a stern, somewhat harsh master, saying that he has high expectations of what they're going to do with this gold. And what happens? The one with five, he multiplies it. He invests it. He makes it work for him. And so when his master returns, he has more than five to return. The one with two, he has more. He's done a great job with that. But the one with just one, all he does is bury it in the ground. And he says to the, the master in the story, he says, I was afraid of you. I knew that you were a master who didn't necessarily just reap what you sowed, that you had high expectations, and you scared me. So I just buried it. Here you go. Jesus gives us gifts. If he was standing here, right here, this morning, he'd be saying to us in this parable, I gave you a gift. It cost me everything. I died on that cross. I was resurrected. I endured the whippings, the beatings, the humiliation, the mocking, the sword spear in the side, the spikes in the hands and the feet for you. And what did I do that for? So you could have a talent. Here's your gift. You have the gift of evangelism, right? You have the gift of knowledge. You have the gift of mercy. You have the gift of hospitality. You have the gift of helps. The master's returning. What are you doing with your talent? He's going to expect an accounting. He's going to expect a return on what it cost him to give you that talent. That's powerful. As I mentioned before, my brother and I became believers in the 70s, and there was a guy by the name of Keith Green that had an amazing uh, ministry. But as new believers, we were listening to his music. And one of his songs is called Asleep in the Light. I just want to give you a, a, a verse out of that. But this so energized us. And he says, oh, can't you see such sin? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church, it just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave. And you, and here I'm thinking of me, you can't even get out of bed. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. And you, you can't get out of your bed. How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend that the job is done. You close your eyes and you pretend that the job is done. We're asleep in the light in so many ways in God's church. There's coming an accountability and we have to be ready. 
that first coming. Think of the things that we associate with that. It was also missed. We already determined that. People just didn't see it happening. But in that first coming, we think of joy. Isn't it awesome? Angels singing, shepherds running, baby is born, star is shining. People are rejoicing. Goodwill to men. But no one saw it coming. It's joyful. Roast turkey in our culture. Trees, gift, gift giving. Ah, oh, just warms our hearts to think about it. Second coming, totally different picture. Totally different story. Judgment, justice, power, God's wrath. There's not going to be any angels singing in harmony on this one. There's not going to be people giving gifts on this one. This is going to be people running for their lives. This is going to be people afraid of the judgment to come. And their only point of salvation at this time is you and me getting on with the work that Jesus gave us to do. After his crucifixion and resurrection, what does he tell his disciples? And I'm sure they keyed this back into what they had already heard from him. Go into all the world, to those nations, to those people groups, and tell them the truth. Yeah, Jesus is a God of love, but God is a God of justice. The prophet Amos, chapter 5, verse 24, he says, but let justice roll down like waters. Let righteousness spew forth in an ever-enduring stream. It's going to happen, people. We have to endure. We have to stay awake. And like people of God missed the first coming, there's every chance that the people of God may miss the second coming, at least the signs of the second coming. But make no mistake, if we're alert, we're going to see it. One other thing that this passage tells us, that these signs are going to be like nothing ever seen since the creation of the world, and it will never happen again. So if the flood has already happened, if Sodom and Gomorrah has seen the raining down of fire and brimstone, it makes me tremble to think of what is coming for my family, for my friends, for those people I care about, for this world. It should be a motivator to us. When you think of your Christian life, what are you prepared for today? What are you thinking about on a daily basis? Is it, I hope I can put aside enough money to retire. I hope I can go and travel the world. I hope my kids and my grandkids are happy and that we have good health. It's not the point. Jesus, in fact, is saying to us, live a reckless life for me. Take no account to your earnings. Take no account to the length of your days. The apostles understood that. They got it. Thomas heads off to India, right? Paul heads off to, to Greece, hoping to maybe someday make Spain and then Britannia. They went with everything they had. They went as walkers. They went as galley slaves. They went everywhere, and they gave it all for Christ. Every one of them died for his name, and for his purpose and mission. Live that reckless life for Christ. If you get to your end of your days, and you're old, and you have accumulated wealth, and you're sitting in a comfortable situation, know then at that moment, you've missed it. That's not what this life is about. 
be willing to endure sickness, persecution, shorter life for the sake of the gospel. It's a radical call, friends. It's a radical call. As I prepared for this, it's, it's, it's convicted me to the core. Join the church today. So many in this world that are living this radical call each and every day in China, in India, all around the world. We in America, we're the ones who are asleep in the light. Let's wake up. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this morning. I thank you for your word. It is so convicting, God. You are returning. May we endure in our belief. Keep our faith. Father, help us to stay awake, to be on guard, to show a world that we heard something at the door. We know you're returning. And Father, may we ask how we can use our gifts, our talents, for the fullness of this kingdom. May we not be lulled to sleep by our culture, by our own expectations or the expectations of others. Father, may we be radical. May Parkview rise up and just be a powerful force for you in this city, in this county, in this state. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.